Um, so when Matt posted last week's message on Facebook, he called it the Ten Commandments and Commandments. And that's a pretty good description of the section we're in. Um, we have this presentation that God is going to lay out a covenant for Israel. He gives the ten words, uh, and then it starts to continue on and give more commands. But, um, and, and we're right in the middle of that. Um, but I wanted to remind us of a few principles uh, here uh, that are at play. When we read the Old Testament law, not specifically the Ten Commandments, those are unique. They'll come back, not, not only um, by chapter 24 when we finish tonight as God writes them on two tablets of stone, but they'll reoccur uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. They're constantly referenced. When Jesus is talking to people about what righteousness looks like, he generally walks through the Ten Commandments. So they, they're unique. But when we look at the national law of Israel, it's worth recognizing that it's different than all other nations' laws in a very uh, evident way. By the end of the book of Exodus, Israel is going to turn to themselves and say, who has ever had God as close to them as Israel has? And who has ever had a law as good as the one God gave us? Right? We can look at our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and we can find uh, you know, written along the bottom names, including a very large John Hancock, of the people who wrote those laws. But this law was God-given and divinely inspired, but it's still worth remembering that it is a national law for the nation of Israel. And so, although it may be applicable to us in principle, and it, uh, it does serve a purpose for us, as I say often, it's worth remembering tonight that all the Bible is for us, but not all the Bible is to us. Right? The original audience, Israel here, needs a law. There are people on the way to a land. They need a government, and God has a plan for this nation, and so he lays out the government to fit that plan. Now, a few more things I want to say before we get into this. It's worth remembering um, that Israel's law is given, like most ancient law was, paradigmatically. It's not exhaustive. It's not like a, uh, a penal code book that we would have today that tries to shut every possible door and escape and describe every facet of a crime so that the full extent of the law can be fulfilled in the courtroom. It's paradigmatic in the sense that it gives examples that it expects the judges to be able to extrapolate from. And so you may be familiar with the fact that it says do not muzzle an ox. That doesn't mean it's okay to muzzle a donkey. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul takes that verse and says, that's a very good reason we should pay our pastors, right? Because the principle is broader than just an ox when it's plowing a field, but anyone when they're working, it should be a, enough to compensate them, to feed them. There, there's a correlation, the Bible says, between work and equal or appropriate compensation. So it's paradigmatic in nature. It's also casuistic, and those two go hand in hand. Casuistic laws um, are different than the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are what we call apodictic laws. They are you shall and you shall not statements. Casuistic statements usually begin with if. If you hire a servant, if your ox falls in a well, if you don't put a fence around your land, those are casuistic laws, okay? And so that comes together with the paradigmatic idea. It's painting us a picture. 
It says, if you want to understand justice from God's perspective, think of this scenario, and then think of this one. Another thing we should keep in mind is although this is different than the Ten Commandments, there is a clear relationship here. It's pretty clear that the majority of the Book of the Covenant unpacks the Ten Commandments. And I'll point out a few places where we see that happening tonight. You can't just break these few chapters, chapter 1, 21, and 22, into reviews of each commandment in order, but we do find sections where it very clearly unpacks um, the Ten Commandments that we're already familiar with. Um, The last thing I want to point out is that this law was given in a particular place and in a particular time, neither of which were here and now. And so we can read the law, and it can seem tremendously foreign to us because it is. We can read the things the law does, and we wish it would do something different. We talked last week about the slavery in Israel, and we saw that it was unique with what we usually think of with slavery, which is American historical slavery, the slave trade. We saw that there was a term limit on it. We saw that it was something that... Uh, people from your own nation of Israel entered into intentionally to get out of debt. Um, But we also saw um, that that reality of indentured servitude was one that the Bible allows, although it does restrict and control. We'll see the same thing with a bride price tonight. This is a very different world. But I want you to remember that this is where the Bible begins. It's not where it ends. And so the law that's laid out here has an intention, but it's not the fullness of that intention. Just think of all the times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the law and says, let me take it a little bit deeper. Let me push it a little bit farther. Let me expand upon it a little bit more. Think of the pieces of the law that are specifically ceremonial in nature. Don't touch this. Don't wear this. Don't go to these places on these days. All of those things, the Bible says, begin here to prepare for their fulfillment in Jesus. But they're no longer needed because Jesus came and he fulfilled them so completely and fully. We don't have to settle for the shadow when we know the substance. In the same way, the civil law that we'll see much of tonight is where God begins, but he's going to continue to shape this people. And I know that might make us uncomfortable because we wish they were modern like us. Now, not only do I think that's a little bit um, arrogant, uh, but also uh, it forgets, I think, one of the most important principles of who God is, which is he's a God that meets us where we're at. Right? That's never where he's going to leave us. He's not finished with us just when he starts with us, but here is the beginning. God's entire um, explanation of who he is is, re- is revelation. Right? It's, it, he's, he's declared to us who he is. But how has he done that? Progressively. Over time, he expands upon and he describes more. He lays out more of the plan and more of his character, demonstrates more of his power, etc., Etc. So let's keep those things in mind as we read tonight, beginning in chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Okay, so the first thing here is just dealing with theft. Now, theft has already been addressed in the Ten Commandments as I uh, referenced. There it just says, do not steal. But here it starts to unpack not only what that looks like, what is stealing, but also how to penalize it. And what it says here is if a man steals an ox, whether he kills it or sells it, 
okay? And so there doesn't have to be uh, an ox found in his, um, you know, in his ownership. You don't have to find it in his house. If you find a receipt for the sale of stolen ox, that's good enough, right? But I want you to notice that the penalty is not equal, is it? It's not ox for an ox, even though last week we read of a principle that runs through the whole law, um, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that justice is supposed to be equal to the crime. The recognition here, um, the recognition here is that, uh, well, let's talk about it this way. If the consequence of getting caught stealing is five oxen, it changes the way you value the one potential stolen oxen, doesn't it? If you're thinking about stealing somebody's property and you know that the penalty is greater than the value of what you're stealing, it's an incentive not to steal. Now, we also notice that built into this, remember, it's casuistic, it's paradigmatic in nature, it's just a picture. Built into it, it also recognizes that that's not an equal principle. So it's not just inflate it by 400% and return it, but it says if it's a sheep, it should be four sheep for a sheep. Now, why the difference? We don't actually know, but here would be my suggestion to you, okay? An oxen is not just an animal, it's a work animal. And so when you lose an oxen, you don't just lose the oxen, you lose a day's labor. When you lose a sheep, a sheep just sits there till you need it, right? Whether you're going to eat it or shear it, it missing for a few days isn't that big of a deal. And so what it's recognizing here is that we have to be broad in the way that we think about theft, that it's not just a one to one change, and that it's not just, um, you know, trying to incentivize against the crime, um, but that we need to think of objects as being what they are in their total, you know. And so we talk about um, damages today in court battles that recognize this. If someone, uh, I don't think this is how it works, but it should, if someone were to steal your car and because of that you have no way of getting to work, then they actually stole your work wages from you as well. That's the principle that's being laid out here. But notice it continues on talking about theft in verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. And so here's the distinction. If a thief breaks into your house at night versus if he breaks in at your day, it, during the day, how you can respond to that changes. And it's worth remembering again that this is the ancient world where at night, things are really dark, right? And if somebody pops into your house, you don't have time to light a torch, right? It's not like throwing a switch on the wall. And so the recognition here is uh, that there is an extreme amount of danger if somebody's broken into your house, you cannot see who they are, and you find them there in the middle of the night. And what it says here is, if in self-defense you kill them, that won't be held against you. There's no blood guilt in that, okay? It recognizes that self-defense is appropriate. On the other hand, it does not give the same right for day, okay? Now, we want to talk about differences between modern American law and the law of Israel the right of privacy and private property and do not trespass, that would be an oversimplification of what's being talked about here, right? Somebody is on your land during the day, you owe them the respect that comes with the dignity of human life. Think of just how differently you can react. First off, you can see who they are, which means what? Even if they get away, you can identify them. Second, it's the middle of the day, so you can cry out and people will probably come for help, 
right? So you're not on your, lo- on your lonesome in the same way. And so the recognition here is that they shouldn't be treated the same. That it is appropriate if you feel uh, in danger because you don't know the details, because you don't understand the purpose or the identity of your assailant, assailant to defend yourself. But in the day, when there's light on the issue, when there's more information, you can't just justify that trespassing um, to, to take their life. He continues on here, and it, it's, uh, it's a challenge. You've got to watch your pronouns here. It says next, he shall surely pay. Um, that is uh, talking about the thief and not the um, one who's being attacked. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, he shall be sold for his, se- sold for his theft. Okay, now this is a broad principle that looks at the last two we talked about. What if a man steals a sheep and gets caught and has nothing in return? He doesn't go to jail. There is no penal system uh, in, in Israel with a prison system. That's not how it works. There has to be compensation. If there's no way that he can compensate, then he needs to sell himself into that aforementioned indentured servitude to pay off what he owes. Okay, And so um, he doesn't get away from it. Verse 4, if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. And so one last clarification, if the ox is missing four times, if he's found in his possession, if he still has it, if he hasn't ruined it and you get it back, he still owes you another ox, but it's not the extensive penalty that was mentioned earlier. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. In other words, if your animal gets out into your neighbor's farm and eats of its corn or its grain, you have to compensate grain for grain. Okay. Notice also it says from the very best of the field. Right? You can't, um, you can't excuse yourself from this by giving the bottom of the barrel. It needs to be um, restitution. Verse 6, if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Now, most likely, this is talking about an accident, right? The idea is that a man is burning thorns in his backyard, something that he needs to dispose of, but the fire spreads and burns down his neighbor's vineyard, for example. He, he owes, he's responsible to his neighbor for his damage of property. Okay, Verse 7, If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it's stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand on his neighbor's property. And so first thing is they should look for a culprit. If they can't find a culprit, then the primary suspect becomes the person that the goods were entrusted to. Now, it says that he should be brought before God. The word there is Elohim. It's it's the plural word for El. And so sometimes it's used of God as in the creator of the universe. Sometimes it's used of the lowercase g gods as in pagan gods. And sometimes it's used of rulers in Israel, specifically the judges. You may be familiar with, uh, with the psalm that Jesus quotes in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus is talking uh, with the Pharisees. He's defending his ministry, um, and he correlates himself with God the Father. 
He says, I, am the, I and the Father are one. In fact, I think this is what he says specifically. So this is John chapter 5, not chapter 10. And what he says is, the Father has been working from now, and I have been working. And so he makes himself equal with God. And so they pick up rocks to stone him, and he says, why do you stone me? For what good work? And they say, no, not for a good work, but because you declare yourself to be God. And he says, but doesn't it say in your own scriptures, and the scriptures cannot be broken, I say you are gods. If those to whom God's word came can be called gods, how much more his son? And if you've ever read it, it's a total head scratcher. In reading the original psalm, which is somewhere in the 50s, I should have looked it up, I apologize, um, Reading the original psalm doesn't actually help until you get the flow of the whole psalm. And what the psalm is recognizing is that these judges operate on God's behalf. And so they stand in the place of God and they make judgment for him. And although that comes with great power, it comes also with tremendous responsibility because God will hold them accountable. And the psalm is a criticism of those judges enjoying the power of being judges and misusing it. And so the psalm ends this way, I say you are gods, but you will die like men. And so it's a recognition of the power, the authority, God-given that comes with rulers, judges, and authorities and the seriousness of that. So it may be here that Elohim is being used in the same way of the judges that they are to be brought before the judges. But it's a little bit hard to tell, and I'll show you why it's most likely brought before God and not the judges in just a second. Um, And so he's brought before to determine if he is responsible, verse 9, for every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. And so it's either the judges handing down a sentence, like they would in a modern case, right, where there's a suspect, and if there's enough evidence to condemn the suspect, then they do so, or there's something different going on. We'll encounter a few other places where the way things are dealt with are a little bit different because God is so present. And so they have an adultery test like we have a pregnancy test, right? And it involves this this concoction and this ritual that doesn't make much sense to us. But if God is really God, and God has made this his law, then he's going to be there to carry it out. I think that's what's going on here. The idea is not that they'll be brought before the judges, there'll be witnesses and evidence in a trial, but they'll be brought before God, and they can take their vows, and they can say, I swear, I swear to God that I did not take that, but God is fully capable of meeting out consequences. The reason why I believe that's the right interpretation is because of what it says next. It says uh, in verse 10, if a man gives a donkey or to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he's put his hand to his neighbor's property. Notice there that there's this swearing again, but this isn't to the Elohim, it's to the Lord. Right? And so they're both to come, both the one who entrusted and the one who either lost or it was stolen with no witnesses, and they're to take a vow. Okay? And what does it say next? It says, the owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. In other words, that is justice. If there's no witnesses, if there's no evidence, you leave it in God's hand. You don't seek to be a vigilante. You don't go, I know he did it. The court's just messed up, and I'm going to go after. He's to entrust it to God. 
Um, and then he says, but, verse 12, if it's stolen from him, he shall make restitution to his owner. In other words, if it comes to be clear, if it's made evident, whether by the court cases, a witness, him coming forward in his convictions, whatever it is, remember how present God is in Israel's life on this occasion, right? There's a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. Do you really want to raise your hand and swear before the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke that you have done nothing wrong? So maybe he just gets convicted and he comes. Either way, if the crime has happened, restitution needs to be made. Uh, verse 13, if it's torn by beasts, let him bring as evidence, uh, bring it as evidence, the carcass that is. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. What's the difference in these things? This one is an accident, but specifically it's an accident where another animal has come in and killed. And so, say for example, you're borrowing your neighbor's ox, and you're out working with it, and it's attacked, okay? You are partially responsible for that animal, but what it says here, as long as you can prove that it's an animal that did the damage, you're off the hook, okay? Now he says in verse 14, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it's injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. Why? What's the difference? Because if the owner's right there, he has every possibility of saying, hey, you're working my animal too hard. Hey, there's no fence over there and I know there's a ravine. We really should, you know, tie him up or whatever. If the owner does nothing to protect his animal, he doesn't get a free animal because of his irresponsibility, right? I want you to notice the intention, the focus on here. He's both navigating these issues that can be really hard because there's two sides to every story and fairness, right? Fairness to both parties. The modern, um, the modern justice system in America banks on, is built upon innocent until proven guilty. And as, as far as a system of law goes, that's a pretty good place to start. It's a lot better than isn't uh, innocent until proven poor, right? Which is how it works in some other governments. But we'll notice as we look through the law that God is also interested in not merely protecting the innocent, but making sure that the guilty get justice. And we all know that in modern law there are loopholes just because we would rather, as it's often said, we would rather send no innocent people to jail and let a guilty man go free. Right? That's, that's the foot we put forward in our justice system. We'll notice as we look at the law here, and I think this is a good example of it, a balance in that. That it says, yes, that's a good place to start, and when we're scratching our heads, maybe the best place to err is that. But there's also something to be said for these people who are con committing regular and consistent crime and getting off free. In fact, we'll see that God cares very much about interference with justice in just a minute. Um, then he adds one last one here. Um, if it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. In other words, if somebody pays you to borrow your ox, the worth of the ox, if it accidentally dies, is built into the payment. Okay? And so you don't get double payment. You got paid for the day's labor, and now you get a free ox out of the deal. Okay? So it navigates these to give a good feeling. Now, notice as it moves on here in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, context. A couple of things. First off, the bride price. 
it is possible, and I'm just going to lay it on the table, it is possible that this is exactly how it reads in English. Money given to the father for the purchasing of his daughter as a wife. I know that's foreign. I know it might even be offensive to you. It's possible that's what the practice is. Okay? It's more likely, I believe, because we find this in the self-same Bible happening over and over again, it's more likely that this is, uh, the purpose of this bride price is to prepare for the future of this wife. So, the man dies. This woman's now a widow. She comes back home, and they have this initial purchase to, for the woman to live off of, Okay? It's, that's, that's how it's used in most places in scripture. The two in the ancient world coexisted. So I don't want to confidently declare that's what it is. But I do want you to recognize how that informs what's going on here. Now it says if a man seduces a virgin. So what are we not talking about? We're not talking about rape. Okay? The idea here is not if a man rapes a woman, she must become his bride. That's not the idea here. This is somewhat consensual. Premarital sex. That's what we're talking about. But remember, in this world, that sexuality was high, held in such high esteem, and virginity was as well, that premarital sex that became known to the community probably would prohibit the woman from ever having a husband. Right? Do you understand why that would be the case? So, the concern here is that somebody can't ruin a woman's life and not compensate her for it, not take care of her for it, okay? Not just casually take her virginity and leave her with the follow-up. And so here, the consequence is to be that he's supposed to either take her as a wife. Why? Because sometimes people who are in love and want to get married have sex. And so that door is left open. It doesn't get him around the bride price, right? It's not a loophole because I don't have enough money you know, and, and let's talk about this as well. Even if it's just a bride price, I would still say there's an advantage here because what does that demonstrate to the family that you're taking this wife from? That you're a provider. That you find their daughter to be worth it. That you're going to take the time and effort to save the money. There are good things here that we might be missing in our culture uh, today, even if there's things to be concerned about. But God's concern in making this law is that the woman doesn't get taken advantage of, Right? And so it says here, on top of that, that the family collectively can refuse marriage, but he still has to pay the bride price. Okay? And so they can decide, look, you seduced my daughter. You're not a good guy. We have no interest in you marrying our daughter. Just because you had sex with her doesn't validate you as her husband. Pay the bride price and go your way. That way the daughter is taken care of in terms of her financial future. Um, but but things are taken care of. And so, so that law is laid out here. And then we have in verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Now, we're uh, dealing with, uh, in fact, let's read them together. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. I want you to notice that all three of those end slightly differently, but they say the same thing. Don't allow them to live, put them to death, devote them to destruction. They're synonymous phrases. In fact, it's because of that um, parallelism where it says the same thing three different ways. We should probably read these three together. 
They're all focusing in on one thing, and it all has to do with the death penalty, but it can be a little bit shocking for us to read. The three people that it uh, speaks of here is a sorceress, somebody who commits bestiality, has a sexual relationship, uh, or uh, has sexual activity with an animal, uh, and then somebody who is actively worshiping not the God of Israel. Okay. Now, let's add a few other things. I think number two and number three are relatively clear. You know what's being talked about there, but let's talk about sorcery. Okay. Um, I imagine it doesn't need to be said, but we're not talking about Harry Potter here. I think you probably get that, but there's more to be understood here. Sorcery in the ancient world came from this general idea that the world could be manipulated, whether there were gods in it or not, usually there were, the world could be manipulated by t particular rituals and practices, okay? And so the heart of sorcery says, I'm the one calling the shots, I'm the one with the reins, you do what I tell you to because I've done this part, because I've made this sacrifice, because I've gone through this ritual, okay? And so it's going to deal with idolatry in just a second. Sorcery is more serious. In fact, later, the Bible says that rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. It makes the two comparisons. Why? Because both of them stand autonomous from God, not subject to God. Both of them draw a line in the sand and basically say, with the right amount of ingenuity, I can be the master of my domain. Now, the reason why we still, or we read that, we go, okay, that's fine, we understand that, and it still seems too harsh, it's because it's still the death penalty, but one of the reasons uh, that this is different is because you need to remember that Israel is a society, and so it recognizes the consequence of society. Here's an interesting fact for you. Sorcery in the ancient world almost always involved what we would today call drugs, almost always. Throughout the entire ancient world, there were, um, you know, medicinal properties, hallucinogenic states, all of these things um, we're familiar with. And so let me put it in a context that's modern. This is not something I'm conveying that we should do in our nation, but just so you can understand the picture. It would be appropriate if it said, do not allow a drug dealer to live. Do you see the correlation between one and the other? The recognition is that you've got somebody who is doing damage and taking lives, and maybe they've never put a gun to somebody's head. Okay. Now, when the Bible talks about sorcery and when it talks about worshiping other gods, the recognition is that all of those things lead to death. Not just judgment with God, but if you look at the idolatry of the Old Testament, it leads to horrible practice in life. So you have the god Molech, who you would sacrifice your infant children to. You have Baal, who had a fertility cult where you would um, engage in ritual prostitution with temple prostitutes. There were actual real-world societal consequences for worship, and I would argue there definitely is today as well. Okay? But Israel was concerned, and God was concerned about those societal consequences, and it takes them very seriously. Now, that still leaves us bestiality, and that can be difficult to reconcile because our culture has such a low view of sex. We might say, well, that's gross, but it's not worthy of death. But the Bible maintains that sex is something, A, tremendously important to God. God designed with a purpose, right? Uh, and that, B, 
because it's so important, it's tremendously easy to abuse and damage other people in society with. Okay? The Bible's not prudish. It rejoices in sex. Read Song of Solomon. It's also not restrictive of sex because it's afraid of sex or thinks that it's a necessary evil or that it's gross. It's because the Bible has such a high view of sex that it draws such tight rules and lines. And the recognition is here in a culture where sex is reduced down to an analog interaction where you can replace another human being, which is directly involved in the purpose of sex, with just a stand-in like an animal, that that's not just going to be a happening, that it's going to do something to society in the long run. Okay? And so it gives these three, and then it moves on. And I, I want you to notice this, okay? So here, don't allow a sorceress to live only worship the God of Israel, and then look at what it says next in 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, first and foremost, there we have a perfect understanding of the concept of tolerance. Israel is to maintain there's one true God and to live inside a particular form of behavior. But they are still to treat well those outside. Oftentimes, we misuse the word tolerance in modern English to mean that everybody is okay, all beliefs are equal, and there is no inside or outside. And so if Christians say you can't behave this way and be a Christian, or if Christians say we believe that only Christians have the truth, that's sometimes labeled intolerant. That's, that's a misunderstanding of what tolerance is. Every organization has boundaries and beliefs. And anyone who stands up in the midst of that organization and says, I no longer subscribe to these beliefs, I'm not willing to live by these boundaries, it's appropriate for them to be removed from those boundaries. But how you treat those outside, that's what tolerance is. And right here in Israel's law, the outsiders in their midst weren't to be lesser class citizens. Second thing I want you to notice here is God cares tremendously about sorcery and he also cares about injustice for the poor. And we have this tendency to fall into two camps where either we're all about social justice or we're all about holiness. And the Bible maintains almost on every page both. Okay, I'll give you an example. Um, the prophet Amos is rebuking Israel for not keeping the same law that we're reading through in Exodus. And listen to what he says here in Amos chapter 2. Verse 7, so what this is, is God laying out the, uh, the um, indictment against Israel. And this is what it says. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Do you see how both of those things are in the same breath, in the same sentence? Over here, you take advantage of the poor and you trample them. Over here, you're sexually unfaithful. Both in the same mouth, in the same verse, in the same sentence. God cares both about holiness and justice. And the truth is, they're much closer connected than we would like to admit. You can be totally frustrated with the reality of sex trafficking in our world, and you should be. I was reading a book today, and it said, sex trafficking and what it does is a good picture of hell, hell on earth. 
But he went on and he said, but don't forget that Jesus pointed to the fact that the flame that fires that hell is found in our own hearts. And he said, if you even lust for a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says the same thing about anger. We look at genocide and we say that's terrible, but recognize that the spark of genocide, anger, he says, that is hell itself, Jesus says, right? You're liable for judgment. God cares about both because they're intimately connected. One of the dumbest ideas we've ever coined as modern human beings is it's not hurting anybody, so it's fine. First off, you're somebody and the Bible cares about you. Second off, you're wrong. It definitely impacts other people because we live, like it or not, even when we hide behind our computers and just know people through Facebook, we live in community. And so God cares about both these things. Back in Exodus, verse 22, you should not treat, mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And so we have the sojourner, the widow, the orphan. These are the trinity in the Old Testament for those who God cares about. You'll find them collectively over and over again. Who are they? They're the ones that are most likely to be oppressed. Okay, so the sojourners don't have any rights because they're not one of us. The widows don't have any protection because their husband is dead. The orphans no longer have parents, right? In every case, there's no one to fight for them. And God says, I am a fatherless to the father, uh, or sorry, I'm a father to the fatherless. I'm a defender of widows. And he roots these whole ideas in Egypt's or in Israel's own experience. He says, you of all people should know what it's like to be foreigners, to be abused and oppressed. So don't do the same. He says in verse 23, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now notice both the consequence there is extreme. When he says, I will kill you with the sword, he's not saying here some sort of heavenly sword. He's talking about war. He's talking about allowing Israel's enemies to come in and ransack them. And what will be the consequence? That they'll be the foreigners as they're dragged into other lands. That they'll be the fatherless because their fathers will die on the battlefield. That they'll be uh, the widows because their husbands won't come home from war. Okay? And so... So it's a strong reaction, but it's a just one. Okay. The Bible calls us to treat others as we like to be treated, and you'll see that oftentimes God maintain, maintains justice in the same way. Um, verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with, uh, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So, now, to be clear here, this is not condemning all forms of interest. But it says, if you're dealing with the poor, you will not charge them interest. Okay? Now, we have today payday loans, which is a perfect example of this. God would call payday loans stealing. It would call it injustice. It's taking advantage of the poor. Recognizing that they're in a hard place and profiting from that hard place. And so he says, there, how it's going to be in Israel, no interest. If somebody's too poor to pay you back, then you give them the time to do so without charging them more. If they're already in the hole, you don't hand them a shovel. He continues here and he says on top, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. So say he borrows money, you want something to, <clears throat> as a pledge that he's going to pay you back. Right? You want something so that you know he's earnest. 
He says, but if you take his cloak, and it's what he sleeps in at night to keep him warm, you make sure he has it every night. Okay? Whatever pledge you're taking here, the idea is that it shouldn't make life harder for them. Okay? Verse 27, for that is his only covering, and it's his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. I told you before that the law uh, describes for us, demonstrates the character of God. And here we see one of the realities of who God is. He cares. He's compassionate. He cares for people in hardships. And he cares about the added vulnerability that comes with those hardships. He says in 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven day it shall be with his mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. And so here we see what they owe the Lord. And it's, it's pictured here in a couple of things. In their offerings. In the right of the firstborn that we already learned about earlier in Exodus, that the firstborn of their animals was either to be sacrificed or redeemed, in other words, exchanged for money, and then the money to be given for God, and then that the first sons would be his. Originally, the first sons served as priests. Now, we're going to get to the Levitical priesthood where they will stand in the place of the firstborn sons, but that's what it's talking about here when it says, you will give me your firstborn sons. Um, verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So here it talks about consecration. Consecration means to be made holy. Okay? And so because they are a holy God's holy people, there's some things they're just not supposed to do. This is the first glimpse we get into um, the holiness code, the kosher laws and these types of things. The only glimpse we get right now is what happens if you come across an animal that's been killed by another animal. And he says, because I've consecrated you, you're not going to eat it. Now this is one of the mysteries of this. We, we wonder why. What's the big deal? Clearly when you look at the holiness code, one of the things God wants to get across is that death is not natural. And so when it, when it involves the dead, there's extra rules trying to teach them the reality of what death is, that death is, um, uh, you know, an alien to human life, right? It's not as God intended it. This was a world without death, and sin has brought that on, and so holiness means recognizing that reality. Maybe that's what's going on. Uh, it's also possible here that uh, eating an animal that you just stumble across of either speaks of kind of an opportunistic, uh, you know, how fortunate, gluttonous attitude, or on the other hand, uh, a desperation. Either way, it's missing the reality of God as provider, right? And so either this is something to overindulge in, uh, or it's something that you're so desperate you'd even eat. And so in that place, you don't trust God. You just take this dead carcass in its place. That's possible as well, but it's not explained to us here. Remember, it's casuistic. The, the law is paradigmatic. And so even when we get to the kosher law, it doesn't have a one-to-one -one relationship. You deal with the menstrual cycle this way because this is who God is. You deal with this because this is who God is. But the whole picture comes together and shapes the contours. 
okay? We've only got one glimpse, and so it's not enough details to go on, but there are things to learn, as we'll see. Chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You should not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. And so what's God's concern here? Not to be a false witness, which is one of the Ten Commandments. But here it unpacks it. And so it starts with, that means not spreading a false report. Taking something you know to be not true and sharing the link on Facebook anyways. Okay? A false report. Um, Why? Because false reports do damage to reputations. Right? He says, also you're not to join hands or shake hands, you could read it that way, with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You're not to sign up to lie in the court stand to put someone away. It continues, you shall not fail or you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Okay? Majority opinion, if it's wrong and you stand with it and you agree with that, then that's bearing false witness. Right? And you're putting someone's life on the line. The Jews uh, in the Sanhedrin had an interesting way of dealing with this. They recognized that this comes down to peer pressure. It comes down to influence. And so when they would vote on a matter, the youngest would vote first and they'd move to the oldest. So that the youngest never had to respond to the weight of the reputation of his elders. Okay? That was an interpretation of this understanding here. That there's a danger in always siding with the majority. And so here, uh, that is listed, and it says, Don't side with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now, you would expect him to say, nor shall you be partial to a rich man in his lawsuit, right? Because that's obviously the more common. I think the best way to read this is not even to a poor man, right? And so this gets rid of a justice system that says the ends justifies the means, Right? that says we can use a lie to do some real good. We can reduce um, the truths of morality to accomplish something that's really important. No, you shouldn't even bear, um, uh, you shouldn't even be partial to a poor man. You shouldn't go, oh man, I can tell that he's having a hard time. Somebody's taking advantage of him. It's probably him. I'm going to pr- declare myself as an eyewitness. It's not allowed. It's still inappropriate. I want you to notice that all of those things take God's justice and put it in your hands. Now you're controlling the outcome, right? Now you're meeting out the sentence, okay? You see, when the Bible talks about authority, and it does so a lot, I'll remind you that the creation order itself in chapter 1 has authority, right? Man and women are built on the earth to have authority, I know we can be very anti-authority, but like every other good thing, that's because we're, ex- we're exposed constantly to the negative twisting of it, right? And so when we hear authority, there is good authority, and then there is also oppression, okay? But the fact that there's oppression doesn't deny the need for authority, and I'll just remind you that when Jesus returns, this will no longer be a democracy, right? Jesus will be king. And that's tremendously good news because he's a perfect and righteous king, right? And so here, what it's recognizing is that the authorities that are in place should be submitted to and should do justly, that they are responsible to God, but they are also the ones we are responsible to. God has set up a system of order, and recognizing the fact that that order doesn't always happen doesn't mean that we should settle for disorder. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Now that's pretty profound, 
It doesn't say your neighbor's ox, it says your enemies. There's that guy who actively has it out for you, and you can see that his animal's gotten loose. You return it to him. Right? This is what Jesus maintains as well. He says, who doesn't love their family or do good to their friends? He says, but true love is to love your enemies. Right? That's how God does us because he sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike. It continues here from a different perspective. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. And so you see him going down the road and the donkey's got too much on him. You help him get his donkey on his feet. You carry part of the load the rest of the way. Okay. Just one insight here. The Bible doesn't see our behavior as mitigated by its circumstances. And so here's somebody who hates you. Here's somebody who's done you wrong. That doesn't justify you not helping them. I mean, I think it's probably clear to us that it doesn't justify us in doing wrong to them. You know, um, Jay-Z in one of his songs says, if you kill my dog, I'm going to shoot your cat. That's just the unspoken laws of rap. And I don't think we're all that extreme, but that's kind of how we can think. This is more than that. It's not just you're not going to mete out punishment and make them feel the pain that they've made you feel. It's that you will still go out of your way to help them if they need it. Okay? If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat, is what Jesus says. Okay? And so, like I said, our responsibility before God is not twisted by how people treat us. I say this often, but if you're in a bad marriage, you can still be a godly spouse. Okay? So, um, he continues on here, verse 6, You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Once again, see the correlation there. If you kill the innocent, I won't clear the guilty, which is you. Right? Justice will be done. This, as a side note, is why it's so important to believe in a just God. I know sometimes we can be uncomfortable with the idea that God is a judge and that there will be eternal consequences for things, but I want you to recognize that every day people get away with it. That people can make their entire careers out of wickedness. And this idea that we sometimes have, this modern version of karma, that what goes around comes around is patently false. David struggled with this. He says in the Psalms, when I looked at the life of the wicked, how they lived large and had the big mansion on the hill, how they were surrounded by their family, and even when they do die, they die of old age and are celebrated in, in our histories. He said, I almost tripped up. He says, but when I, when I went into the house of the Lord, I remembered their end. You see, the universe is either a place full of injustice and will always be, or it's a just place and justice will be done. And so even when there's injustice, even when the court fails us, we can always defer to the highest court. And if you read the Psalms, David knows a little bit about that. He's constantly saying, vindicate me, O God, right? Um, it continues on here. Uh, verse 8, you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause who, of those who are in the right. Okay, and so bribes, anything that perpetuates injustice or impedes justice. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So that brings us to the end of this section about 
mistreatment, about the oppressed. And it reminds them again, this is who you were. This is what I brought you out from. And so you were not to treat them this way. Now we get into some Sabbath laws and festivals. Verse 10, for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it, let, let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Here we see that this idea of Sabbath is bigger than just a weekly occurrence. You know, we've already learned six days shall you work, but on the seventh it's a holy day to the Lord, and you shall do no work. Here it says when you plant a field, you will farm it for six years, and in the seventh year you will just let it do whatever a field does when you don't tend to it, right? You'll let it lie fallow. And so the principle is bigger. We'll see that this broadens out into the year of Jubilee, which is every seven sevens is followed by a 50th year. And then everybody who is an indentured servant is set free. Every debt that is made is forgiven, right? And so there's this broader pattern that's being laid out here. But I want you to notice the reason that's given here. It's to give the poor a way to feed themselves. If you want to call it welfare, that's fine, but I want you to notice that it's unique. This is not food stamps. This is a field where they can do the work and find something to eat, right? So it's a little bit different than that, but they're to uh, maintain this. Now, does this mean that every seventh year, all the farmers took the year off? Probably not. They probably rotated their crops, right? But any particular field, on the seventh year, they were to leave alone while they tended their other ones. And so there was a rotation of which field that was, which also meant there was always somewhere the poor could go to scavenge for food. In fact, we'll find later on that he tells them that when they reap their fields, they're not to reap it all the way to the edges. And if they're carrying a bushel of wheat and one falls to the ground, they're not to stop and pick it up. They're to leave those things so that the poor can come in and feed themselves. Okay. God cares about the poor. He wants Israel to do so as well. And it includes animals as well. That their animals, those same ones they're not supposed to muzzle when they're threshing in this field, they should also be open to graze in the one that's laid, uh, laid fallow. It continues here in verse 12. Six days you shall do work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So he reminds them here that the Sabbath is not just a privilege for the righteous or for the uh, parents, that the children, the servants, and even the animals, that all of them are to have this rhythm of rest. God cares when animals are overworked. God cares when employees are overworked. I had a friend who was in an industry that is known for monster hours. Known for it. Everybody who signs up knows uh, that they're going to lurk, work long hours, and then when it gets close to shipping product, they're not going to go home at night for probably a couple of days. And my friend was a Christian, and his company was founded by Christians, and I challenged him all the time. I said, what's uniquely Christian about your company when you follow the same work cycle of everyone else in your industry? Right? Why do they do that? Because everyone else does, so if you're going to stay ahead of the competition, but that's not how we think about things as Christians. We don't think about work in terms of getting ahead. We think about works in doing a good work because God doesn't make junk, so we don't either, in terms of providing a living and providing a service to our customers, right? And so, so it means the way we work, if you're a boss, the way you treat your employees and what you expect of them, 
You know, if you make sure you have a day off, great. The Bible says that's a good idea. Make sure your employees do too. I've grown really sensitive to this over the years to the degree that on massive major national holidays, I don't swing by Starbucks anymore. Because, because even though it's just one cup of coffee and me not showing up doesn't mean that they're going to close the doors, I still would rather they'd be with their families. And sometimes these things, like Sabbath laws, are more about, it's not about changing the world, it's making sure that you're not changed by the world, right? And so they're to have this pattern of work and rest. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you should keep a feast to me. You should keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in that you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. And so it says three times a year there's to be a national feast and all are to show up. Later it will explain that it will be all adult men. So for Bar Mitzvah 13, all the men every year were to come to what will eventually be Jerusalem for a feast. Okay? And see how that's related to what it says in verse 13. Pay attention to all that I've said to you. What would happen at those feasts? A reminder of what God had done, right? The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a reminder of Passover, that they were brought out of Egypt. Um, The other feasts we'll see have those same memories. Also, much of the Old Testament was read aloud to the crowds at those festivals. um, And they, they actively brought their sacrifices, including the ones that they offered on behalf of their sins. They, they would all do it at one place, the temple, so they do it three times a year. Um, and so here, when it says, uh, you shall not come empty-handed, it means that everybody's to be participating. There's no audience for the festivals, right? They're to bring their offerings before the Lord. Verse 16, you shall keep the feast of harvest. The first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. And so at the beginning of their harvest, they're to bring an offering in Thanksgiving for all of the harvest before they've harvested it all, and then at the end, they're supposed to come back. And so these three separate occasions. Now, when we get into the book of Leviticus, they'll unpack these festivals and we can deal with what they really mean. But here, I want you to just notice that the year is punctuated with gatherings as a nation to worship the Lord. Um, Verse 17, it repeats, Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. Then it adds a few more things about worshiping God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, that last one comes as a curveball, right? The other ones we can kind of nod along with. It's not really that surprising. But when it says you shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk, we go, wait, what, 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 what are we talking about here? But I want you to notice that the way these are put together structurally, they seem to go together, and that helps. Okay? The other thing that's a head-scratcher on the list is that it says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Okay? Some sacrifices were leavened. Some bread sacrifices had yeast and had raised, but they were never offered with the blood sacrifices. Those are to be kept separate. Now, why does that happen? help us with a goat and its mother's milk? Because we don't know what the big deal is but Israel probably did, okay? We don't know a ton about the Canaanite worship practices in their day-to-day sacrifices, 
but most likely these things, a coupling together. In fact, we do know there was an ancient practice of making blood bread where so that you could digest the blood, which God is very clear because that's where the life is. They're not to ingest, right? Kosher meat is drained completely of its blood. But there was a practice in that world in those times where you would bake blood into a bread because you would gain the power of the animal you were eating through the eating of it. So maybe that's the distinction here. Most likely then, boiling a young goat in its mother's milk is something related. We don't know what it was for, but it was pagan in nature. And its purpose goes against the grain of who God is as provider and Lord and Savior. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, the Jews today take this very seriously, and so when they have a burger, they have it without cheese so that there's no relationship between, potentially even, between the dairy of a mom cow and its baby that you're eating on your burger. Um, but like I said, most likely, like many of the laws we'll encounter, the concern here has to do specifically with pagan practice. Just one aside to prove my point. You may be familiar with the fact that Leviticus looks down on tattoos. It also looks down on cutting the sides of your beards. But when you look at the passages themselves, it's very clear that it's not merely tattoos. It says tattoos for the dead. Don't know what that is? That's the point. Okay. It's speaking of a practice that was known in that day, and it says you keep your distance from this. This is not who you are. Okay. So maybe some people would celebrate you should not boil a young goat in its mother's milk because it seems cruel. But not even my teenage boy would think that that was exciting in the cruel teenage boy sense. It seems more likely to me that we're talking about something that the first audience understood to be a pagan practice, and it just says, all pagan practices, like boiling a kid in its mother's milk, don't participate. Verse 20. Now, finally, we're to the end of the laws, and now it's going to talk about consequence. The Old Testament law maintains that there's a relationship between obedience and blessing. Okay? Now, remember that this law follows after them being delivered. They are already God's people. So it's not, if you keep my law, then I will accept you. But their promises to enjoy the land, a fruitful harvest, um, fruitfulness in, in having children, uh, peace from war, all of that was directly related to their obedience. Why? Because God is not above using object lessons. And he constantly reserves the right to get their attention. Okay? And we're going to see that they're constantly unfaithful. And so God needs to draw them back by reminding him what's at stake. And so that's what's going on here. Notice what it says in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So this is a little bit mysterious. Instead of just laying out laws and saying, if you obey these laws, we'll get there. That's just about to come. Instead, it says, I'm sending one before you, and if you don't listen to him. It refers to him as my angel, but it adds at the end, my name is in him. It's relatively clear that this angel of the Lord that we've already encountered in the book of Genesis and will be a constant feature all the way through the book of Numbers um, is not any, any old angel. In fact, there's this um, blurring of lines between God's identity and this angel's identity almost constantly. And so, for example, when it says, my name is in him, that's a big deal because the prophets go on to say, I will not share my name with another, right? 
And we're going to see that this angel speaks and do his be, to be obeyed, and he speaks as the Lord uh, with, uh, with Samson's parents. When they encounter the angel of the Lord, that angel receives a sacrifice and worship. That's weird, right? And so this is more than just an angel. This is God personified in a visible and tangible way. And some would say that we're talking about here a Christophany which is just a theological word that means an appearance of Christ before the incarnation. Okay. Now, although I did once read a commentator that believed Jesus became a man and then time traveled back and appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, more likely it's just the recognition that Jesus has always been the logos, the word, as John says, that he is the visible manifestation of the Godhood. And so here, um, that's what's being referred to. And so it's both me and not me. It's both God, but the Son and not the Father. And so he says in verse 22, But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and you bring you, brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I'll take sickness away from among you. Now, I want you to notice this. These are the consequences of obedience, and that includes you will not bow down. Did you notice that? This is not a warning. He doesn't say when you get to the land, do not bow down. He says if you obey when you get to the land, you will not bow down. You see, the Bible doesn't see idolatry as, clear, as just an alternative of worshiping God. It sees it as a slavery. Okay. If you read Romans chapter 1, what does it say? It says that we rejected the truth of the real one true God as creator, and then we shaped gods in the forms of creation, and God gives us over to that. Okay. Just chew on the reality that there's a sense where idolatry is punishment. That God gives us over to our gods. We say, I want to worship money, and God says, go ahead, and money destroys us. I want to identify with success, and then we constantly feel threatened. We, we need to re reclaim our identity over and over again. Right? The Bible declares that sin leads to slavery, and so it's recognizing here that if they just stay close to God and are obedient to him, then they won't be subject to false systems of worship. Um, and so he says that they will be healthy, uh, that there will be no sickness. Verse 26, none shall miscarry or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Two things. This is Israel, not us today. And we have to watch out for making a correlation and saying, for example, oh, that's a miscarriage. That's because I've done wrong. That's because that's a bad person. Have you read the book of Job? That's Job's friend's entire philosophy of life. Look, Job, your life just fell apart. God is clearly terribly mad at you. If you just repent and stop doing whatever it is that's so awful God's so mad at you, then everything will be better. But that wasn't the case at all. Right? There are a whole lot of reasons things happen in our life. Okay? And we have to watch out for this false positive that assumes that everything in our life is God mad at us. In fact, if you're a Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation to those of you who are in Christ Jesus. God no longer has punishment for you. He is faithful to discipline you, 
to train you up in righteousness. And so he allows things into your life to do that, but they're not punitive. They're disciplinary. They have your good in mind and not just a meeting out of consequence. Okay, But with Israel, they as a unique nation, as the people of God, who have to survive in some semblance of faithfulness long enough for God to complete his mission in sending his son, he sets up a system, a warning signal, right? So they'll know when things are going wrong. And it involves tangible evidence. They can look at society as a whole and they can go, okay, something is wrong here. And we'll, we'll see them do that as we travel through the Bible together. Verse 27. So here, not just the blessings for them, but what will war look like? He says, I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. They'll run away. I'll send hornets before you. We don't know what that word hornets means, uh, but it's, it's always used in a context of God's divine warrior battle. Um, but I will send hornets from before you. Um, Uh, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. So do you see what's happening here? God says, I'm going to fight your battles for you. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. That's fascinating, right? God says, I'm not just going to give over the land in a single year. You're going to fight for a while so that when you take occupancy of it, you're strong enough to settle in it. Right? He says this is going to be progressive. Listen, God does the same thing for us today. God desires to change us, what the New Testament calls sanctification. But he doesn't just dump it all in your inbox and say, get to work. Right? It'd be terribly overwhelming. Some of the worst things I've learned about myself, I've learned recently. I've been walking with Jesus for maybe 13, 14 years now. There are still new revelations of awfulness. But I will tell you what, if I had known all of these things up front, I would have waved the white flag and sat on my butt and just gone, you know what, I don't know if I can do this. He's giving them this land, but he's giving them one piece at a time so that every piece of land they take, they can keep, they can benefit from. It's progressive, like everything God does. He says in verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. I know that might sound like a discouragement to you. You don't want the victories in your life little by little. But God has a plan in it, and he's not just giving you victory. He's making you a conqueror. And so that means you're not just going to pick up a 300-pound weight tomorrow. You're going to start at 25 and then you're going to be able to do 35, and it's going to progress, right? Because he's not interested in you crossing the finish line. He's making you like Christ, right? And it's the same thing with Israel. They're going to take the land little by little, and that's by design. Verse 31, I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness of the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest, you make, uh, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And so he says here that this is mission critical, that they can't leave this partially done that if they leave these people in the land, eventually they will cave and they will give in to their worship. Okay. The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. 
the idea is that it's often attracting and appealing. To the degree that Eve can look at a full orchard, a smorgasbord of beautiful things to taste, and now the only one that she can think about is the one she's not allowed to have, right? And it's good to the eyes. It's attractive and desirable to make one wise. That's the way things are. And so these things have to be dealt with. Managing your sin is playing with fire. Okay, I'd like to get through this last chapter, chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, (coughs) Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up here with him. And so what it says here is Moses is going to come all the way to the top of Mount Sinai. The elders, uh, Nadab and Abihu, the priests, they're all going to come halfway up the mountain, and the people are going to stay put. Now, I just want you to recognize very quickly that we're seeing preemptively the layout for the tabernacle and the temple. Okay, and so there's, there's levels of entry, and not everybody's allowed in. And so Aaron, who is a Levite, is playing the role of the high priest. He's stepping right into the cloud of the mountain, the holy of holies. And then there's the elders, the leaders, the representatives. They're in the court. And then there's everybody else. This distinction is already being laid out um, because in chapter 25, we'll start talking about the tabernacle. And so it's personified here in Mount Sinai. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, they'd already said that in advance, before these things were given. Now Moses communicates them, and they ratify what they said. They agree to the covenant. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So the first thing he does is he writes all the rules down. As I told you before, the Bible uh, is starting to be built in these days. And so we've already seen Moses wrote down about the battle with the Amalekites uh, earlier on, and now he writes down what we know as the Book of the Covenant, what will grow into the Book of Exodus and then eventually the whole Pentateuch. Um, But here it mentions that. And then the second thing is he sets up for worship. So he builds an altar, a simple one, as prescribed by the laws we read last week. Um, He sets up 12 pillars as representatives of the 12 tribes. In verse 5, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed the peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, what he had written down, what we read today, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So they kill some animals, they read the law, they put some of the blood on the altar, and they sprinkle the rest of the blood on the elders of Israel as representatives of the nation. Why? Okay, first off, in the ancient world, all covenants were ratified with blood. And so when God makes a covenant with, uh, with Abraham, they cut the two animals in half so that they can walk between them back in Genesis 15. And in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it says that the new covenant, because this law wasn't enough to change our hearts, God promises in the book of Jeremiah 31 that he's going to do a new covenant where he'll take out our heart of stone and place, replace it with a heart of flesh, where he'll give us his Holy Spirit and we will be his people and he will be our God. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that and he says that Jesus shed his blood because all covenants are ratified in blood. And so 
It's the same idea here. Why does that matter? It matters, uh, it matters because of sin. It matters because of the reality of the distance between God and people. And so that distance is only bridged by sacrifice. But think what it'd be like. You're standing at the mountain, all of these things we will do, and he sprinkles the blood on you. And, you know, where it's on your face, you notice when you get home, where it's on your clothes, it's stained for good. There's a constant reminder of the covenant built into this as well. Verse 8. Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up, remember halfway up the mountain like we talked, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And so earlier, they weren't going to see God. It was made very clear that it was only Moses who was going to see God. But here... Because the covenant, because of the blood, they're able to step in and they see. And do you notice the description? It says, and under his feet was pavement like sapphires. Um, It is amazing how often there's a vision of God and it just focuses on where he's standing or where he's seated. If you go looking for a description of God, what we would know as God the Father in the Bible, you won't find one but you will find constant descriptions of his throne room, references to what's under his feet. It's this recognition that God is beyond comprehension. And so um, so Moses is grasping for straws to try and explain this. And it's almost such a profound experience. Somebody goes, well, what was God like? I don't know, but where he's standing, that was like sapphires, right? That's as close as he can get to a description. Um. Verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. When it says here that they did not lay his hand, it means they all lived, right? And so that's profound. And then it says that they ate and they drank. You see, what a covenant does is it gives fellowship. And so in eating together, they're eating together with God. A relationship is is being built here. We'll see more of that in the sacrifices in Leviticus. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses writes down the book of, co- of the covenant, but then God says, come up and I'm going to write down for you the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And so <coughs> verse 13, Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Now that'll become important, because Aaron's going to make some unilateral decisions, and they're going to be bad. But he leaves Aaron in charge, and he heads up the mountain. God just tells him to come up and wait. He doesn't know how long it's going to be. By the time he returns, more than a month has passed, 40 days. Okay. Verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, like in the tabernacle, the high priest could only enter by blood, and then just once a year on the Day of Atonement, Moses is sitting right on the outskirts of this, you know, smoke-made tabernacle until the seventh day, and then God calls him in. And then we'll finish here, verse 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. 
Now it's telling us that because basically we're, we've, we've got two places now. Here's what happens with Moses. Here's what happens down below. Where we pick up next week, we'll start with Moses, and he's going to be told about the tabernacle. But what goes on down below as they watch their leader walk into, you know, a burning mountain and then not come back for 40 days, it tells us this, it writes it in this way so we can feel like they do, which is confused and afraid and vulnerable, okay? Because while he's receiving this plan for the tabernacle, they're creating their own golden idol god to worship, uh, and then things just go to hell, okay? So that's where we're going. Um, But we'll go ahead and close there tonight. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I found for me and for many Christians that the law um, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus in Numbers can be hard for us to navigate. We don't always know what to do with it, but I thank you for the truths that we did learn tonight, that you're a God who cares about justice and fairness and stands with the oppressed and against oppression, um, that you're a God who uh, is compassionate, and that you desire to be in relationship with people to the degree that even before Jesus came to set things right, you came up with a way for God to dwell with Israel, for Israel to dwell with God, for a system that would both point forward to what you were going to do and give them access to the living God in the meantime. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to um, walk as those who are holy, that like Israel have been saved and therefore live a particular life because you have made us a particular people. We pray these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.